Hello and welcome to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and today we'll be discussing branding. Branding is one of those subjects that is endlessly debated by the marketing community. And yet, as a young marketer studying and learning my trade, I struggled to understand what the real purpose of a brand was. I heard my peers in similar roles talking about staying on brand, about using the right brand tone of voice. I'd seen ideas of mine discredited because they weren't in line with our branding. It's easy to nod in agreement with these types of comments, but I wanted to find out why branding was so important and what it was really for. Now, at a basic level, branding is a mechanism to sell more goods and services. But brands have become much more than that. They are a seminal part of our society and our culture. A study by Nickelodeon suggested that children, by their 10th birthday, can recall over 400 different brands. But why do marketers spend so much money building their brands? What happens in a consumer's mind when they see a brand? And why is branding such an important part of marketing? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Dr. Matt Johnson, a neuroscientist who is focused on bridging the gap between science and business. His book, Blind Sight, is co-authored by Prince Gooman, a former CMO with decades of marketing experience at high-growth companies. Both Matt and Prince now lecture at the Holt International School of Business in San Francisco, and they run the Neuromarketing Bootcamp, which helps marketers better understand their work through the lens of neuroscience. Now, let's start with Matt and Prince explaining why they became so interested in consumer psychology, starting with Matt talking through his career to date. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Myself, I, I come from the world of neuroscience. So I did a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. My uh, entirety of my 20s was, was effectively in labs and libraries, just diving really, really deep into uh, very, very specialized topics within the field of neuroscience. I'm completely driven by curiosity, really what 
uh, sort of makes us do the things we do. Why do we do the things we do? And uh, I come to the question of consumer behavior uh, sort of as my general orientation. And, and uh, so I come from it purely from sort of a science curiosity standpoint, which is, is sort of a contrast from, from the practitioner-based approach that, that Fritz comes in with. Yeah, and, and sort of in contrast to that, we've, uh, uh, you know, my, my background has been also driven by curiosity, but I would say primarily driven by application. So I was fortunate enough to work at startups early on in my career. And what that means is you're able to test a lot of things early on. So uh, I was on the other side uh, of Matt's world where I would read as many of his abstracts as I could without my head exploding because, I, you know, the vocabulary for abstracts is a whole different thing um, and try to test some of those things that I'm reading in abstracts and pop psych books and pop neuroscience books. So I did that for almost 15 years before Matt and I converged upon uh, teaching at the university uh, at Health Business School. And, uh, and really, at that point, I, you know, in the process of teaching a class on neuromarketing, one of the things that we learned was there's sort of this divide between marketers and consumers, and it shouldn't be. Consumers want amazing products and brands and experiences, and, and, and marketers such as yourself and I, Phil, want to create that. And yet somehow there's this weird divide, almost a mistrust there. So, you know, I, I see neuromarketing as a way to bridge that divide, and that's where Matt and I come together. Matt and Prince's book is called Blind Sight. The story behind that name is really interesting. In the book, both Matt and Prince explain how a blind person can navigate a cluttered room without stepping on any objects. Somehow, blind people can subconsciously perceive additional information, like the sound of their foot hitting the floor and the pressure of the floorboards, allowing them to walk through the room without tripping up. Our mind is often doing a lot of additional work behind the scenes that we're not aware of. The book Blindsight aims to give us marketers and consumers an understanding of that process. I asked Matt and Prince about the behind-the-scenes ways brands affect our decision-making. Here's Matt explaining the neuroscience behind branding. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's branding is, is fascinating from the standpoint of neuroscience. And so I think for me, the question isn't so much what a brand is, but it's really where a brand is. And so a brand really from the standpoint of neuroscience is the totality of the semantic and emotional associations that you have with it. So it exists nowhere else but in the brains of consumers. So it's a lot of talk of uh, brand constitutions and what's in the brand charter and what's in the brand message and all of this constructed behind closed doors. Uh, but if these aren't associations aren't ingrained into the brains of consumers, then they, in effect, don't exist. Yeah, well put, Matt. Um, I, mean, I think as a marketer, uh, we get often we get caught up in brand voice docs and, and brand guidelines and all these things and and, and you know, being on brand versus off brand and all that stuff. But ultimately what we forget, I think, uh, is worth highlighting here is brands are the space between subjectivity and objectivity, right? That's where a brand sits. You know, you can get a cotton t-shirt for $2. You can get two cotton t-shirts for $2, you know, or you can pay, uh, you know, $150 for a Yeezy brand cotton t-shirt, you know, probably made in the same factory and yet two completely different experiences. And that's the power of a brand. Prince says brands sit in the space between objectivity and subjectivity. The great brand can elevate something which is objectively normal into something which is subjectively great. A 
A classic example of this is Pepsi versus Cola. There's a famous study that reveals that many Coca-Cola fans who have purchased the soda for years actually prefer Pepsi when tasting the drinks blind. The researchers concluded that these loyal fans got most of their enjoyment not from the taste of Coca-Cola, but instead from the brand. Here's Matt talking through that example and explaining the science behind it. Most listeners are probably be familiar with the famous uh, Pepsi challenge, right? So if you, you believe that you're drinking Coca-Cola and it's only Pepsi, you'll, you'll actually taste the liquid better. It'll actually be perceived better to you. And that's really the power of the brand. So when you don't put the brand here, you know, people actually slightly prefer Pepsi, even though they're, they're diehard Coke fans. So that's the, the sort of, uh, you know, classic example of placebo effects when it comes to functional brand value. Uh, but then there's, there's this extends into uh, wine. So wine is a huge area where these brand effects make a massive, massive difference. So the same exact wine hitting your tongue will actually be perceived to taste better if you believe it's from a high-class winery, if it has more syllables in uh, the wine bottle's name, if it's served in a, uh, a crystal glass as opposed to a styrofoam cup. There's all of these effects which have nothing to do fundamentally with the sensation at the level of the tongue, but have everything to do with this gap that Prince mentioned, which is between subjectivity and objectivity. And that's really the, the marketer's playground. That's really the role of the brand to create these amazing experiences for us as consumers. So we, we, we do talk about the, the specific ways in which certain brands uh, can come across in a bit of an ethical way, unethical way, but I think we owe a massive debt to brands in just the amazingness of the experiences they can create for us. In many ways, they sculpt our very experience of reality. I mean, that's, and that's one of those things. Is it truly trickery if at the level of the brain you are tasting a specific flavor that just hits differently? Is it really trickery if me wearing my Jordans, I jump an inch or two higher in my vertical leap, right? And that's the, the, the Nike golf example is perfect for this, you know, and, and I'll summarize it quickly, but I think it's fascinating. It isn't just tricking your taste buds, right? It's you give professional golfers sets of golf clubs to go, to go hit the fairways, right? So you've got the unbrand, unnamed, and then you have starter brand, which is a budget brand, then you have Nike brand and see who hits furthest. And of course, Nike brand golf club goes the furthest, drives the furthest. And then you find out ultimately that it was exactly the same golf club, just with a different brand on top. And, and that sort of stuff really gives you a moment to sit back and truly underline the point that when done ethically, this stuff is, is charming. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Man, if I'm a professional golfer, I do want to hit the ball further. Why wouldn't I, right? If I'm a professional basketball player, I do want to dunk on everyone. I want whatever advantage there is. And I think when it comes to brand, perception really is reality. I think we have to do it ethically, but Matt put it best. You know, between subjectivity and objectivity is the marketer's playground, is the branding team's playground. And I think doing it ethically, we find a really good balance between marketer and consumer. Brands can make wine taste better. Brands can help you hit further on the golf course. And brands can also change how you're perceived by others. An incredible study by Dutch researchers showed that people wearing clothes with a visible brand, a premium brand like the Tommy Hilfiger logo or the Lacoste logo, were viewed more positively and actually treated differently than those without brands. In the experiment, subjects evaluated photos of people wearing branded clothing. Some subjects saw photos with the logos digitally removed, but with identical models and styles. 
The people with the visible branding on their clothes were judged to be of a higher status and wealthier than those without the logos. Another experiment showed participants a video of a job interview. The male interviewee was either seen with or without a visible brand on their clothing. Not only was the candidate with branded clothing judged to be more suitable for the job, but his recommended salary was also 9% higher. The most surprising experiment in the series took place in a real-world setting, in a shopping mall. In this study, the researcher approached shoppers and asked them to participate in a short survey. While only 13% of those approached cooperated when the researcher wore an unbranded sweater, a huge 52% agreed to join in with the study when she wore the identical sweater but with a designer logo on top. That difference, more than a four-fold increase, is really incredible. This all explains why branding is so important. It helps explain why Coca-Cola spend $4 billion a year marketing their brand. But what about recall? What makes some brands stick in our minds? What makes some products more memorable than others? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fantastic question. So the way that we'd like to think about it is uh, brands are like characters in a movie. And you can think of any given movie as being that industry. And so sometimes there's going to be the leading characters within that movie that are obviously going to stand out in your head. So if you're talking about uh, the, the movie of athletics, this is going to be Nike and Adidas. You're always going to remember those. But that doesn't mean that you're only going to remember those two characters in the movie uh, that play a leading role and that have all the exposure, you're also going to remember the characters that really, really stand out. So if everybody in the movie is very, very, very solid and, and very sort of down, and one person in the movie is all ippity and, and has a really bright personality that stands out relative to everybody else, then chances are after you leave the movie theater, you're going to remember that specific character. And so I think it's important to keep in mind from the standpoint of brands that absolutely exposure is massive. Mere exposure effect is, is very real, and this has a huge role in, in nailing down these associations within our semantic network. Uh, but there's a huge role for uh, differentiation as well, and, and the consideration that really everything that we process is relative to something else. Yeah, and to add on to that, we live in a world where you know everyone knows Coca-Cola. So why is still Coca-Cola spending billions of dollars a year, right? Uh, and I think I think it's one of those totally, uh, you know, what Matt said earlier is like marketers have instinctually converged upon certain scientific findings because they're out here just testing stuff. But you go back to the 30s and 40s where the rule of seven first came out or the law of seven. It's really funny when we're writing the book, Matt's like, what's this law of seven that marketers like? I was like, first of all, it's BS. It's not real. But it was just a funny thing that even, you know, pop marketing in Matt's world is like, oh, this rule of seven must be a thing. But when you think about the rule of seven, which is, if you're uh, if your consumer hears a message seven times, they're more likely to buy, right? The number seven doesn't matter, right? The number itself is is unscientific, but the concept underneath it, the mere exposure effect, absolutely applies, absolutely. And the other thing that helps with memory is positioning, right? The brain is a pattern learning machine, so it is constantly picking up on patterns, and and so much of that is done without your conscious knowledge. And yet when something breaks through that pattern, marketers, we call it differentiation or positioning, right? Neuroscientists might call that attention. And then, you know, part of the memory uh, package is grabbing attention as well, 
right? So you can't be you can't be an extra on this stage. Right? Matt said he said it perfectly. Characters in a the movie, there's supporting cast members and there's extras, right? The more you differentiate, the closer you work towards being the the lead, as opposed to the the worse you are differentiating as a brand, you are going to be a supporting cast member at best or an extra in the back at worst. The movie example is great because we've all got examples we can reference. For me, I think of Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is pretty much Coca-Cola in the movie. We remember him because of the mere exposure effect. He is in the majority of the scenes and he gets the most airtime on screen. And yet most viewers also remember Jabba the Hutt. Jabba has far less screen time, barely any lines, and yet he is also remembered pretty significantly. Why? Because he is distinct in the movie. His low voice, his grotesque scaly skin and slug-like appearance really stands out. While Luke is Coca-Cola, Jabba is, I guess, Monster Energy Drink. Monster's unique brand, advertising and packaging stands out compared to the normal soft drink advertising. Now, most marketers think achieving mere exposure with potential consumers is very costly. It costs a lot of money to get somebody to see your brand several times. But Matt and Prince cite companies who have found smart ways to achieve this without spending billions on advertising. Joe and the Juice, a coffee house and smoothie shop, achieves the mere exposure effect by initially only creating stores in four locations, London, Sydney, San Fran and Amsterdam. That's in addition to their original stores in Scandinavia. Now, by focusing their expansion in those specific areas rather than spreading their stores across multiple cities, they increased their exposure and ultimately their likability in the places they actually were based. It helped the company compete with the likes of Starbucks without having to build a coffee shop in every city across the globe. But awareness and memory are different things. It's one thing to be aware of a coffee shop brand, and it's another, though, to remember their ads. I asked Matt and Prince to talk about memory, specifically to debunk some misconceptions that many marketers have. Here's Matt explaining that most of us are pretty bad at remembering brands. Memory is one of those things where it's it's very, very counterintuitive. So we walk around the world with the idea that we just have the record button on and that yeah. later if we're trying to conjure up a, a memory, we can just press the rewind button and we can just replay the experience. But it turns out that, that neither of those things are true. So looking first at this, this process of recording, which in neuroscience terms uh, we call encoding. So you're encoding an experience. And it turns out that not all aspects of the experience are equally weighted in memory and that your state of mind during the creation of the memory, during the encoding process, is very, very important. So the, the study that you cited that we talked about in the book is by uh, Diana Tamir and colleagues, which found that if you're at a concert and you pull your phone out and you're, you're trying to record it on your phone, uh, chances are you're actually not going to actually remember the experience as much. And that's because you are exporting your encoding responsibilities to your phone. You're actually not focusing that much on the actual experience. You're not straining your attention to, to take in that experience. Uh, you think you're going to watch it later. You're going to throw the content up on Instagram, whatever the case may be, but you're actually memory for it is, is impoverished as a result. So the mind state, which, which we are, which, which uh, is, is present during the encoding process is very, very important in the types of memories and the quality of memories and the degree to which you can remember certain things after the fact. 
It is naive to think that customers will remember your brand after seeing your ad, or even that customers will remember your brand after they've purchased your product. Prince goes on to talk about how different types of advertisements affect memory. While a billboard is unlikely to be encoded in the long-term memory of your consumers, other advertising mediums are far more memorable. Specifically, video game advertising appears to really help with memory encoding. Here's Prince explaining why. What's beautiful about that is in some ways in the world of video gaming, as an advertising measure, it's slightly underutilized, but it takes more effort, right? So just like recording on the camera, uh, you're going to pay less net attention to what is happening because you're also focusing on the camera and the, and, and the images and the right exposure and all that stuff. Think about what's happening with video games. You are actively engaging. Your brain is fully sucked into a video game. So a, a, a really easy, easy example is creating cute little uh, stairs that as soon as you step on them, they play music. And if you happen to be a musical company, Spotify, a musical instrument company, a Yamaha, immediately that's an application that will encode Yamaha deeper into your brain if you've got a Yamaha sponsored set of stairs at a subway and people are just walking around going, ah, oh, Yamaha, bing, 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 right? Um, but in video games, it's taken to the next level. In video games, if you can create a branded experience that is within the context of a character, a racing game, whatever that may be, that is a much deeper uh, encoding of memory. So far, we've learned that brands can change our perception of a product or service. We have heard how they can increase the amount we pay for a brand and even our enjoyment of the product. We've dug deep into why some brands are far more memorable and even looked at tactics to help increase recall. But before ending the discussion, I wanted to know... Are Matt and Prince still affected by branding? Do they still fool for the same tricks as the rest of us? Or does their knowledge of how our brains work make them immune? No, ab absolutely. Like as much as we have studied this and as much as we know the depths and the intricacies and the potency of placebo effects and functional brand value, it doesn't make me like brands any less. And it doesn't make me any less... Uh, prone to these sorts of effects. I'm not immune just because I, I know about it. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think my uh, experience as a consumer would be degraded if I was somehow immune to these placebo effects. So for me, that, that brand is Nike. Uh, I've always liked Nike and uh, I have a, a long-term collaboration with Nike and I've worked up with Nike. And for me, Nike shoes are just a, a step above the rest. And what I feel, when I wear Nikes when I have some some uh, some some basketball shoes on or whatever else, uh, it, it makes me feel differently than if I'm wearing a generic brand, if I'm wearing a different brand, and that is owed basically to nowhere else but the associations I have with it. It's owed to the brand. So yeah, for me personally, uh, it's it's it doesn't make me any any more immune to these brand uh, effects. Yeah, I mean, it also does not make me immune. If anything, it makes me appreciate a bit more. For me, it's, I also picked a pair of shoes, but for me, it's a pair of Red Wing shoes, boots. Um, I don't know what it is about them. There's plenty of amazing shoemakers all over the world, especially in UK. Uh, I don't know what it is about those pair of shoes, but I get it. They just sell very much an Americana image. They, they have a, a brand perception that I sort of internalize when I put them on, so it's not gonna help me jump high or anything, but maybe it gives me, I don't even know how to measure it, that little 10% boost in confidence if I'm speaking in front of a, you know, a few thousand people, whatever that may be. Um, so yeah, I, I'm gonna stand by Red Wing, but specifically the, 
the little boots that make me feel <laughs> a bit more ready to ready to perform. I guess. I'm wearing them right now. Funnily enough, <laughs> not in front of an audience. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. But don't worry, Matt and Prince will be back in two weeks' time with another episode on Nudge, where we'll discuss the power of storytelling in marketing. To make sure you don't miss that episode, please sign up to the Nudge mailing list, the link to which is in the show notes. Sign up to that and I'll send you an email every time a new show goes live. And if you've enjoyed today's show, I'd highly recommend picking up a copy of Matt and Prince's book, Blindsight. It is one of the most up-to-date books on how consumer psychology and marketing interact, and it's jam-packed with great examples of how brands influence us with their marketing. Matt and Prince also run a neuromarketing bootcamp, which can help you and your teams level up your understanding and help you start to apply some of the principles we've talked about today to your work. Both the link to the book and the boot camps are in the show notes. So go down there and click those if you want to find out more. Anyway, that is all for today. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge. Mm-hmm.